Hi, this is Morgan Michael welcoming you to Kindsight 101, the podcast, where you'll hear from world-renowned educational leaders about the mobilizing power of kindness. I believe that we all have an innate need to be seen, heard, and understood. When we dedicate ourselves to kindness, the ripple effects in our schools can be life-changing. Through this podcast, I want to challenge you to question your assumptions, amplify your insight, and embrace a willingness to go beyond the status quo in education. Together, let's learn how to make a big impact, one small act at a time. In this episode, I'm going to introduce you to a remarkable woman who will share simple, actionable tips to help your students and colleagues combat the number one health epidemic of the 21st century. You'll learn the surprising ways our bodies react when we're in crisis and a proven three-step approach to teach your students resiliency in the face of adversity. She'll highlight actionable ways to instill firm, loving boundaries within the classroom while maintaining a playful sense of adaptability that fosters innovation and creativity. And finally, you'll also discover specific and effective ways to address bullying and support youth in crisis. Hope you get as much out of this conversation as I did. I want to thank you for the wonderful reviews that you've left for this podcast on iTunes. Your reviews make a big difference in helping other educators find this show. If you think that I'm doing good work here and you'd like others to get inspired and join our 21-day kindness challenge and movement, I'd love it if you would take a minute, head over to iTunes, and leave a review. Thank you so much. So welcome, Dr. Shimmy Kang. It is such an honor to have you on the Small Act Big Impact Kindness Podcast, and I'm very, very eager to dig into some of your research, your work, and your really important book about preventing and supporting people through all sorts of different adversities and challenges that life presents us. So I'd like to start by, before digging into the prescription for some of the issues that we might come up against in our lives. I'd love to dig into a little bit of where we're at in terms of our mental health crisis. And it seems to me that we're experiencing an epidemic in terms of the levels of mental illness, something like one in five of our general population within North America is diagnosed with a mental illness. Our youth are becoming increasingly susceptible to anxiety, depression. One quarter have even had thoughts or attempt at suicide. Can you speak to this seemingly recent increase in mental illness? What are some of the potential causes for our current mental health crisis? Yeah, that's a really important topic. And um, I really do agree with what you're saying is that we are in a state of crisis. My background is as an addiction psychiatrist. Actually, I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist that specializes um, in addictive behaviors, which really do begin in young people. Um, and it's uh, a disease of adolescence that starts, actually. And to answer your question, I think there's a lot of factors that have come together. Um, some are positive, in fact, the fact that there's less stigma and more diagnosis. Um, and so we're picking up mental health issues. But that doesn't uh, account for the rising rates. Mm. Um, that accounts for the rising awareness. 
the rising rates, again, a whole bunch of factors, but I think uh, the main ones that are the most preventable are lifestyle related. Mm. So, you know, mental health issues are rooted in our genetics, but the fact they're on the rise isn't about our genetics. It's about our lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So right now we know that children are increasingly becoming sleep deprived um, and up to 40 to 60%, depending on the study of school age children are sleep deprived. Children are play deprived, meaning that they're not getting free unstructured play, uh, which is a huge stress reliever as well as has some very strong built in antidepressants in that activity. They're deprived of community, connection, kindness. Uh, we see uh, uh, physical exercise, um, uh, which also is, has a natural antidepressant component uh, on the decline. And a big factor in all of this is technology as well. Um, so the uh, when the iPhone uh, was released in 2007, uh, and we saw the movement from desktop to laptop to mobile phone, uh, we can show that the rates of loneliness um, have gone up, uh, which of course are also linked to um, anxiety and depression. Humans, I say, are very social beings. So all of this in combination is leading to what you're discussing. Absolutely. And I, I absolutely agree with that point about the loneliness stemming from this disconnection, I think, on some level that we're all really searching for and not quite being able to grasp. And there's sort of this illusion through social media that we might have a certain number of friends, but really deep down, who is it that we call when we're we're feeling low or we're struggling or we've we've come up against adversity? So I can imagine that that certainly does play into that loneliness factor. And of course, for youth who are so susceptible to that and and impressionable in many ways, that must be very devastating for them. Absolutely, yes. And youth are um, their brains are actually more vulnerable to mental health issues. Uh, they are more driven to by nature or their own biology or how their brain is hardwired. Um, they're more driven to long for and seek social connection. Uh, it was very important back when we were hunters and gatherers that young people found their own tribe, connected, procreated, all of that. That's how our species evolved. And uh, so when adolescents are lonely, it is a really severe uh, risk factor for all kinds of things, um, including um, depression, anxiety, and addiction. Yes. So your work, and I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the ways that we can approach reframing this mental health crisis and even potentially gaining a little bit of certainty and possibly control over the situation as it pertains to our own experience. So your widespread work in the medical, parenting, and motivational fields as a Harvard-trained doctor in psychiatry, multiple book, best-selling author, TED speaker, keynote speaker, I mean, you're incredibly gifted and, and have had such a widespread effect on many different um, realms with relation to this mental health crisis. Can you speak a little bit to what are some of the symptoms of the stress in our bodies and lives and relationships? And how does that sort of affect and ripple out into the other realms of our lives? And also, can you share what advice or prescription you've given to patients and clients who fight that everyday stress and, and give them sort of a roadmap for getting ahead of it? Yes. So stress is, uh, according to the World Health Organization, stress is the number one health epidemic of the 21st century. And that's a really amazing statistic when you think about 
how we've progressed in many ways, but this thing called stress is our biggest threat to our health. Mm -hmm. And we kind of don't fully appreciate the health impact of stress because we use the term really lightly, right? Yes. Um, You know, my kids stressed us out or the traffic is stressful, but stress is toxic. What it does is it uh, releases a biological stress response um, modulated by things like adrenaline and cortisol. But really what that response is, many people have heard of freeze, fight, or flight. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, when we think of nature, we think of freeze like a deer in headlights, fight like a tiger roaring, or flight like a bird flying away. Mm -hmm. For humans, all of this happens in our mental state cognitively. So our freeze is anxiety, Mm. uh, indecisiveness, procrastination, uh, difficulty initiating and motivation. So we're mentally frozen. Mm -hmm. Our fight is irritability, anger, rage, uh, and our flight is any kind of mental escape or uh, distraction, which would include things, obvious things like drugs and alcohol, but also things like video gaming, internet, online shopping, and even being too busy, just overly distracting ourselves. So when we look at freeze, fight, or flight, um, really manifesting for the individual in the areas of anxiety, anger, and mental escape, when we look around uh, to ourselves and people we know, we're seeing these behaviors everywhere, Mm -hmm. uh, which makes sense because stress is the number one health epidemic. I love how you give those really tangible examples of that fight, flight, and freeze response as we know it. And I think a lot of people would not consider procrastination, for example, to be a freeze response. They just wouldn't even consider that. So I think it just gives people that awareness and ability to reflect on the things that we do, even on a subconscious level, that is really deep-rooted in this stress response. So I really appreciate you teasing that out. I want to talk a little bit more about this idea of of numbing. Um, So Brene Brown has said, we cannot selectively numb emotions. And when we numb the painful emotions, we also numb the positive ones. What's your advice for living mindfully in spite of painful or difficult experiences? And how can we sit with it, accept it, and allow it to work through us instead of resisting it and numbing it out or even going through that flight, fight, or freeze response? Yes. So, you know, painful life experiences, adversity are part of life, unfortunately. Um, And for many people, um, you know, it it is devastating and into varying degrees. So we can't pretend we understand what it's like to have gone through something unless you've gone through it, I believe. Um, But we do know that regardless of the experience and when we look at severe situations like war or the Holocaust, We know that certain ingredients really helped people overcome that kind of adversity. Um, The main one is community. So a sense of connection uh, to each other or something greater than yourself uh, really is uh, uh, uplifting, provides a sense of optimism. Um, A sense of gratitude is also been shown uh, to help people get through difficult times with that mindset that Um, you know, things could be worse and to be grateful for what they have. Mm. Um, And also just some really basic stuff um, in terms of, uh, I call it the basics of a human life, uh, which is routine, regular sleep, routine, regular exercise, uh, routine, regular social connection uh, and uh, play and uh, following our passions or taking some time to do those things that make us feel 
good inside. Uh, so all of these things uh, in combination can certainly help uh, get through those difficult times. Uh, we don't tend to have those life skills. They're not taught intentionally anywhere. Uh, and that's the bulk of my work um, and my books and the Dolphin Kids program is to really get young people to learn this early because we know that children um, are really open to these ideas of gratitude and community and um, healthy lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And um, so we, when we intervene then, we're giving them the tools to face whatever might come their way. Absolutely. And I know that you've said that these ideas and even your mom, your mom related to this I, I read or I heard, and correct me if I'm wrong, but she said, well, this is all common sense. It seems so simple. But you've said, well, it's a simple thing to do, but it's very difficult to actually or, or you know, challenging to put into into effect some of these practices, such as, like you said, getting sleep, drinking the right amount of water, you know, engaging in pro-social relationships and giving back and, and contributing to our communities. Why do you think that is so difficult yeah, that's, it's such a great question. I, the mantra I use in, in uh, my talks and books is simple is not easy. Like you said, drinking water and sleep is simple, but it's not easy. Uh, and knowing is not doing. We all know we're supposed to do that. That doesn't mean we're doing it. Uh, but when we do, we become better. Um, doing leads to being. So why are we not doing it? Um, part of it, it is if we're in freeze fight or flight, if we're in stress mode, we're just running on a reactive mode. We're reacting to um, the next thing. We're not interacting from our higher cortex, from that decision-making part of our brain that makes choices. Right. And uh, in my research, when, especially when I looked at parenting trends and how parents are over-scheduling and over-pushing and over-micromanaging and overdoing all of these things, all in, all for the right reasons, because they love their children. Um, one thing that frequently told me is that, you know, I know this doesn't feel right, but everyone else is doing it. Yes. So that's the other piece is we're all in it together. And so it's really hard to sort out from the noise. But that, that part of the statement that says this doesn't feel right, that's a um, really powerful piece. That's a signal of our human intuition, mm -hmm. which is very different from our stress instinct or freeze, fight, or flight. That human intuition is that voice um, that's telling us that we need to slow down, we need to sleep more, we need to pay attention to that feeling, we need to deal with that relationship stress. Um, and that human intuition is actually... Uh, also grounded in science um, in terms of how the different neurons in our body interconnect. Um, there's neurons in our gut and our heart and our brain. So we need to understand that um, and pay attention. But I think part of our, uh, our cultural norm is to uh, really numb that voice out or like you said, uh, just distract ourselves. Mm -hmm. And you've talked about that sort of pursuit of success being also a real driver for us. And really, I personally believe that when we really analyze and, and pick apart what success means to us, that some of that, some of those expectations can kind of fall, fall to the wayside and you, you can get real with that intuitive voice that tells you what's important. And I, I've experienced this as a parent myself and, uh, and even as an educator, of course, but I think it was more, more profound when I was a parent, when it's that 24 seven, 
you know, grueling labor sometimes that comes with parenting. And I know that you have had experience with that personally. Um, In terms of that vulnerability piece, how do you think that your own personal experience with parenting uh, really, really challenged you to reckon with yourselves and yourself in terms of that vulnerability piece, checking in with yourself and what propelled you to get inspired to create this pod framework? Because I think that is such a fascinating thing, that idea of getting, you know, having a struggle in your life, finding a solution and then, and actually acting on it. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So I, when I became a parent of three children, um, actually when it was it was apparent when, as soon as I became a parent, I was overwhelmed, um, completely overwhelmed. And then my, with my second child, it was even worse. And I wasn't even sure I wanted a third, even though I had always wanted a big family. I was the youngest of five in my own um, family. And I really had to ask myself, why was I having so much trouble, such difficulty, such sense of stress and anxiety raising these three kids uh, when I thought of my own parents and my own mother who didn't have what I had, uh, and she had successfully raised five. And in fact, my own mom um, certainly wasn't Harvard-trained doctor who knew all this um, child development research. Mm-hmm. She had never gone to school. She actually never had the opportunity um, to attend school because she grew up in a village um, and she couldn't read. My mom is illiterate. Mm. But she parented through her intuition. She was very clear of those simple but not easy things um, that she just knew. She didn't need to read in any book or anything that led to uh, uh, feelings of health, happiness, motivation, things like uh, all the basics we talked about from a lifestyle point of view, things like community, contribution, character. Uh, And it was really that moment that I was like, wow, if I'm having so much difficulty with this and remembering those important things when I was raised that way. So I had that foundational role modeling. Plus I had all this education. Mm. Plus I was telling everyone who went in, who came through my door as a psychiatrist, what to do and how to do it. But I wasn't doing any of it myself. Mm. So that's really what led me to say, if I'm in this place, uh, where, where is everybody else? (laughs) Um, And I almost wrote the book a little bit to um, put myself back into a state of balance, um, Mm -hmm. to give myself permission to not do what everyone else around me was doing. Um, I felt I knew it inside intuitively, but I needed the scientific proof for it Um, because I'm a scientist and I'm a a psychiatrist and I'm an academic. So Mm -hmm. my book really is, um, the Dolphin Parent book is really a scientific book of common sense and intuition. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I did, I had to put references for things like sunlight and play and connection and napping and healthy diet and and kindness and contribution and all of these value-driven uh, character traits that that we know are important, but but I felt I needed to ground that in something that people understood to kind of wake myself and everyone else up from what was going on. Oh my goodness, I'm so appreciative to you for sharing that story because I think I think we all 
just need to take it down a notch, right? And I think mm-hmm. I think every parent is sort of hit with this freight train. And I think this extends to the caring professions, to teachers, to nurses, to doctors, people who take care of other people. It becomes overwhelming. And I think there's this sense of the right way to do it. And, and you're right. I think you are seeking the, the roadmap that says this is the way to success. And it can be very, very difficult. I want to dig in a little bit to perfectionism. Um, I know that artists and, and authors have have often been seduced by the power and have spoken to this sort of power and allure of perfectionism. It's kind of revered in our culture. It's almost, I mean, it's to that point where we're putting it on our resumes and, and sharing it in the job interview as this, this quote weakness, but really it's a strength, you know, or that's how it's perceived. So really I I've come to see it as a destructive force and perfectionism can have sort of this def- devastating effect on our well-being and happiness. Can you identify the difference between healthy striving and perfectionism and, and sort of that antidote to perfectionism, which by the way, when you first share this, shared the antidote, I just thought, wow, like it gave me chills. And I thought, of course, but I had never put the idea into effect. Okay, so yeah, yeah uh, perfectionism, you're right, is something that we covet and we actually strive for. Society uh, encourages it even now, even more so with social media, um, this filtered version of personal lives. It used to be that only celebrities were photoshopped and filtered, but now everybody is on mm-hmm. Instagram and, and everywhere. So um, there are rising rates of perfectionism, particularly among women, um, and rising rates of narcissism, which is kind of connected among boys and men. Mm. And um, it's a terrible thing because it's linked uh, to anxiety and depression. Uh, And when you think about it, it makes perfect sense. If you're a perfectionist, um, well, being perfect is just not attainable. So you'll never feel satisfied. It will impact your self-esteem. You'll always feel anxious or less than. um, And uh, that's definitely not good for your mood or identity. So we know that it's linked to uh, mental health issues. And the anecdote I talk about as the opposite of perfectionism is actually play. Yes. Um, And play is uh, a mindset as well as a, a whole bunch of activities. But really, the play mindset is the anecdote for perfectionism, which is a mindset of being comfortable with mistakes, um, learning from trial and error, not being perfect, being messy um, in terms of trying new things. There's no way you're going to innovate, progress, move forward, and reach your highest potential if you're not making mistakes, if you're not uh, risking um, looking silly or looking foolish or falling flat on your face, um, you won't achieve that level because uh, with uh, success and innovation and progress, uh, we absolutely cannot stay the way we are. We can't stay perfect. So those are diametrically opposite. So play um, is the anecdote. Uh, it's also the ingredient for innovation and it feels really, really great. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing that because I think sometimes that perfectionist uh, ideal or or this ideal for perfection can sort of blindside us to all of the other things that are so important to our growth and our the ability to just flourish in life, right? So thank you for saying that. Before we talk about some of the you know tips and actionable tactics that we can do to live a life of play and and contribution and connection to others in that downtime. I'd love to dig into some of the neurobiology behind kindness if you can because you are 
obviously an expert on this. And what I've heard and, and how I've connected it is that that the kindness piece in our life and inviting kindness and, and acting genuinely with a kind heart and a kind approach can actually offset some of the damaging effects of stress. So that's really what this small act, big impact 21 day kindness challenge is all about. It's dedicated to creating habits of kindness within our schools and communities and, and, uh, and workplaces because we know that that kindness piece is contagious and reciprocal and that it can reduce the overall symptoms of stress. So I'd love to hear you speak about this a little bit and how important it is not only to develop sort of this kindness mindset, but also the habit that goes along with it. Because it's not, I don't believe that one-off kindness gestures are really the ticket. Yeah, absolutely. And so the neurobiology is really interesting because I say this is natural to humans. Kindness is um, is hardwired in us. So, and again, when you think way back where humans came from, we needed to be um, very tight knit in our communities. Um, you know, at one point there was no such things as an ambulance or a school or a hospital or any kind of infrastructure. It was just people helping each other and um, being driven to do that uh, biologically and through societal norms. So the human brain actually rewards kindness um, through two different neurochemicals. Um, the first one is uh, what we call the helper's high. Uh, so when we do something that helps someone else, an act of kindness, we get a little hit of dopamine. Um, and dopamine gives us a sense of pleasure immediately. Uh, it gives us that little helper's high and we feel kind of good. We feel we get a little bit lighter in our step and uh, you know, I don't know anyone who's helped someone or done something kind and then just feels terrible, right? right. <laughs> we, we feel good. Um, so there's dopamine and that's the initial drive. Um, and that one also is linked to reward. So people, because it's immediate, they associate kindness with feeling good, which is uh, mother nature's or biology's way to remind us to do this again. Next time you're feeling down or next time you want a little hit of this great feeling, do something nice for someone. Hmm. So that's that immediate reward. And then the secondary reward comes in a cascade response um, uh, over time. And that's where acts of kindness uh, that are cumulative or daily really add up. And that comes from the neurochemical serotonin, uh, which is a happiness kind of chemical, let's say. You know, we use it, a lot of the antidepressants are modulated through serotonin. Mm. Um, and that one isn't immediate, but over time, um, you know, that's where we see um, the feeling of not that immediate pleasure, but that feeling of well-being, that feeling of connection, that feeling of groundedness that may come when you are a regular um, contributor to your society and, and your and your community. So it's really profound neurobiology, and that's very simple. Um, I definitely haven't captured all of the complexity of it, but I think it is important to know that um, I say uh, kindness and contribution. These are nature's most powerful antidepressant. We are heavily rewarded for these um, with dopamine and serotonin, things that are driving us to remember to do it again and also maintaining our personal health and well-being. And then along that, we see physical health effects as well. We know people who regularly contribute um, have better heart um, uh, profiles, less heart disease, 
Um, we know that seniors who volunteer um, generally uh, live longer. Some of the studies are showing up to five years longer um, and less rates of infection and flu-like symptoms. So, so there really is an impact both on the mind and the body. That's such a wonderful thing to really dig into. I think it's it's neat because, I mean, we all know that kindness is good, but I think when we understand what it does to our bodies in terms of turning turning some of the negative things sideways and, and even developing this really uh, ingrained change in our brain is how I understand it as well, is this that the more you do it and the longer more long-term it is, the more it changes the actual structure of our brain. Is that correct? Absolutely. And I write prescriptions for all kinds of sleep medications and ADD meds and antidepressants. And I write a prescription for kindness, for contribution, for community on a prescription pad. Wow. And I give it to my patients and I say, I want you to take, do this every day, just like you're just like you may take the medication every day and, if, and you have to take the med every day for six weeks before we know antidepressants work. Um, very similar, this is a um, activity that has known antidepressant qualities um, and no side effects, right? So that's the good thing. Absolutely. And can you talk a little bit, because this is certainly not my area of expertise, but I've heard about this hormone oxytocin, that connection love hormone. Does that factor in somehow? And, and how does it factor in? So oxytocin, yeah, it's our hormone of bonding and trust. Uh, and it actually gets released uh, when we show empathy. And so it's embedded in uh, in this concept. So um, it is released by the individual who's showing empathy and the person who's receiving empathy, um, and that bonds them. So, for example, let's say, um, you know, some kids are playing soccer or on the street and uh, a, a teammate gets hurt uh, and another teammate will run over to that person and be like, are you okay? Do you want a glass of water? Let me help you up. Um, and they're showing empathy. And what happens in that moment is both of those young people's brains are going to release oxytocin and they are going to have a uh, feeling of well-being, a little bit of that connection and trust and bonding uh, within that act. So oxytocin is kind of an additive, uh, you know, it makes this all even more powerful. Uh, but we do know that it is released um, it, when we are empathic and we're meant to be empathic. Uh, and uh, that's why it's so powerfully uh, rewarded for us. Thank you for that. Can you speak a little bit to the contagious nature of kindness as it relates perhaps to this concept of mirror neurons? And I know that there's been some sort of you know, differing opinions about about mirror neurons, but can you just talk a little bit about uh, your your professional you know uh, opinion about about that research and science? Yeah, so all humans have mirror mirror neurons, and um, I haven't personally researched mirror neurons. From what I've understood, is um, they are activated when we are um, in social settings uh, to. Uh, drive us towards empathy. So I think an example of what might be in mirror neuron is, uh, let's say you're walking and somebody beside you is about to hit their head on a low lo low level beam, let's say. <laughs> you're going to duck and you're going to get them to duck, um, meaning you're just going to um, move your, your hand over their head to have them duck. So your behavior 
um, will mirror their behavior or vice versa. Um, and again, that's a, uh, on the outside, you look at that, it's like, oh, that's a nice thing to do. Um, but it's actually uh, driven uh, uh, in, in our subconscious, actually. We're not really choosing to do this. It's, we, we will do it automatically um, because it's hardwired in us. So mirror neurons are activated when people aren't even voluntarily activating them. Uh, so it's it's a pretty fantastic understanding of uh, what I would say humans, uh, we are very social beings. Um, our brain is highly social. Uh, and that's why I use the metaphor of the dolphin. Yes. They're the only other animal that um, is uh, so social, the real estate area uh, for social connection, empathy, mirror neurons, all of this is very large. Uh, but uh, we've forgotten how to be human. We've forgotten our own humanity. Um, so we, so this is true for uh, many mammal brains uh, and definitely true for humans. Wow. And thank you for bringing that up because this is this is sort of where I w- I'd love to go in the conversation as well. So now that we know that kindness and connection is such an important piece of our workplace culture and our school cultures, uh, how can we as leaders, as educators, as as you know, community um, organizers, really tease out some some practical and actionable ways of of fostering this type of an environment where kindness is the norm, where people take care of themselves, where we're really supporting one another in just as human beings in general. And I know that you you speak to the the contrast between the jellyfish and the tiger and the dolphin personality as it relates to parenting and, you know, leadership and, and even teachers, I would imagine it would apply, that model would apply as well. Can you speak to that a little bit and how we can actually foster this environment? Yeah, so, I mean, there's generally three interpersonal styles. Um, These these aren't three people. Uh, One person can have three different approaches depending on their day or their mood or who they're with. Uh, But one approach would be that tiger interpersonal style where you're overbearing, micromanaging, and authoritarian. Uh, We see that in parents who are really, really pushy or authoritarian teachers, Um, you know, maybe very well-meaning, but by taking over... uh, control, they're not allowing for uh, the creative process, the independent thinking, um, the adaptability that is really important for our long-term survival and success. Uh, The opposite of that uh, style or relationship would be the jellyfish, interpersonal style. So these would be teachers, parents, or colleagues who are just too permissive. in the relationship, they lack structure, rules, authority, and things are all over the place. Think of a chaotic classroom where there nobody, there's no rules um, and nobody's learning anything. Mm-hmm. And then the balance between these two uh, extremes would be that dolphin interpersonal style. If you think of the animal, the body of the animal is strong, uh, firm, but flexible. Mm. So there's a real firmness there, um, meaning in terms of expectations, rules, authoritative, Mm. um, and firmness in values. So, um, and those aren't compromised. Things like respect for each other, responsibility, community-mindedness, those aren't compromised, they're firm, but there's flexibility for the individual's choices and um, um, their individual passions, their problem-solving, how they get to um, a certain outcome. So that's uh, the dolphin interpersonal style. It may be a parent, a teacher, uh, a workplace. Uh, I do a lot of speaking in the corporate world. And 
when we look at that metaphor, it really is, um, when we go back to stress, um, the dolphin has to be in a place of balance um, and functioning from their higher cortical brain. Because if you're in freeze, fight, or flight, um, jellyfish is a bit of a flight, right? They right. may just be checking out. Um, and tiger is a bit of a fight or a freeze, right? They're over, over directing, micromanaging, or they're over pushy. <laughs> so you can kind of see how when we are uh, not stressed out, we're more likely to be in that dolphin place of collaboration with each other, which is the most effective relationship, the most motivating um, uh, uh, place that we would want to be in all our relationships. Certainly. And, and I'd love to dig into a little bit around, you know, in the advent of this conceptual era where we are facing, we're right on the brink of all sorts of uncertainty and so are our students and all of that, all of the uncertainty actually that that revolves around the future, how on earth are we going to prepare our students and what are some of those CQ skills that you talk about that are really important for us to be practicing with our students and really helping them to be metacognitively aware of yeah so we're living in this wonderful age um this modern world that's really uh on one hand stressful we already covered and fast paced and rapidly changing but on the other hand it's full of opportunity um, because age-old in institutions are being disrupted the school system is changing rapidly partly because of technology uh, we don't need to memorize the right answer anymore. Uh, we need a whole different level of intelligence. Um, and that's what we call CQ or um, the consciousness quotient. This is um, a 21st century uh, skill set and it's made up of the five C's. Um, people have heard these in job interviews and in reference letters. Uh, it's communication, collaboration, critical thinking, creativity, and contribution. Now, when you think of all five of those, none of them can exist in stress mode. You cannot be creative and stressed or a good communicator and stressed. Or mm -hmm. um, So these are all higher level skills um, and they are uh, really uh, the ingredients of adaptability. And um, so, for example, if we just even look at the school system now, let's say in the past, um, an essay question could have been talking about uh, something historical or something that a student had to try to, uh, un you know, read a passage and understand the con context. Now, um, questions are things like you don't have to write an essay. You can write an essay or you can do a video or an infographic or, you know, some other way of communicating an emoji. Yes. Um, and, and critical thinking is making sense of all this data that is coming at you. Um, not just looking something up, but trying to organize the good from the bad and asking those important questions um, and collaborating with diverse groups um, and global groups. And uh, creativity is really innovation. We're in this era of concepts and innovation. And the biggest C I say is contribution. Um, not only is uh, because it's good for your brain and for a community like we discussed, uh, but it's also really great for your career because in a world where anything will be automated or outsourced, your value as a person is uh, is going to be what you contribute. What type of um, value do you provide to that culture, um, to the people that you work with? So are you a contributor uh, or a competitor, let's say? 
So when you look at these C's, it's a it's a really powerful skill set, um, but it's a very uh, natural skill set for the human to have all of these skills. Uh, and so I say it's a very exciting time uh, to be in education and, and a teacher or a parent, uh, but it is a time of major change uh, and people have uh, a lot of difficulty with change, Yes, uh, but we are here for sure. Yes. And I, I really, I really can identify with that sense of things are changing. And I think some people are looking at straight in the eyes and other people are really having a hard time with that uncertainty. So I think part of the goal of the Small Act Big Impact is to create a bit of a roadmap for, for educators and teacher leaders as well to go, okay, well, we might not necessarily have it all figured out, but there are ways that we can tease out the really important skills, identify what those are, and then adapt them to our practice as it is, and then move toward a more innovative model as we go. So I think there's sort of a spectrum of people. And it's it's important, I think, for all teachers to adopt and adapt to that future pull, I guess, in that direction. But it's also, it can be frightening for people. So so I think it's a it's an important conversation for sure. I would love to dig into some of the examples and some of the tangible, maybe actionable strategies for cultivating collaborate or sorry, uh, contribution within our schools and our communities. I'm sure you've had all sorts of different people sharing stories that they've, that they've you know, done in the community or that they've witnessed. I'm sure you have been part of projects yourself that have been, you know, monumental in making both small and large scale changes. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's, it, it's exciting what you mentioned as well in terms of um, the change. And some of the, the examples I'll give are also things that we see in social emotional learning, um, you know, which is part of many curriculums now. And, uh, is a wave that's going through uh, the school system. But what we've done in our programs at Dolphin Kids in Canada and uh, Dolphin Kids Online, and we have a program in India called Dolphin Pod, uh, really is to uh, take things that are familiar to parents um, and kids, um, but to uh, put a twist on them in terms of providing positive mindset and life skills. So for example, we run summer camps um, and spring camps. So uh, these are structured just like any other summer camp that you might go to where you, um, the idea, you know, where kids are used to playing soccer or doing art. But our summer camps are structured along the POD method, um, which stands for play others in downtime. So every child that comes to our summer camp first gets some downtime. Uh, meaning they will sit quietly or stand quietly, um, maybe on a yoga mat or just in the room. We may have music playing or the lights out. Uh, we may do some breathing exercises or some type of mindfulness uh, uh, activity and just really calm the brain, um, move uh, those people out of freeze, fight or flight, out of that stress mode where they may have been rushed from some other activity or been sitting in traffic or pulled out of um, uh, being at home or in their bed uh, to make sure that their brain is receptive, their mind is open uh, to learning and connecting. 
Uh, and then we bring in the others and play, meaning the environment has to be a positive social environment. So we put a lot of focus on that because uh, humans, especially children, are what we call relational learners. Mm. Uh, we learn best in positive relationships and positive social environments. So our programs would include all kinds of collaborative activities. Uh, we get outside as much as we can. I think nature is a major um, tool for uh, health, happiness, motivation, and success. So it gets the brain really fired up in a nice way. Um, so our uh, activities uh, are designed to develop those CQ skills that we just talked about. Mm -hmm. So one would be, let's say, um, you know, we have a survival game where we divide kids into groups of four and we give them some materials like uh, paper or plastic, a tent, um, um, to make a tent and tape and and so they have to work together and then we may announce that oh now the you know the wind has picked up and blew your blew your tarp off so mm -hmm. uh, but here's some new supplies some rope and some water and now what do you do so to really encourage that innovative thinking that play mindset you can't be a perfectionist if you <laughs> are you'll quickly get over it in yes. these activities. <laughs> Um, and so it really is connecting that play in others. Uh, for our academic programs, uh, we would, uh, let's say it's math or science, we would still start with downtime and then deliver that curriculum lesson of math or science, like triangles or gravity, whatever the curriculum may demand at that point. Um, but in a play way, meaning we start with stories, um, the human brain really responds to story. We do a lot of brainstorming, meaning how asking the students, how would you give a lesson on triangles? How would you give a lesson on gravity? Why do you think triangles are important? Why do you think gravity is important? So really bringing in that collaborative play mindset in everything we do. Um, and we always end with a gratitude journal. So these are, uh, I would say, simple but not easy things. Um, you know, they're, they're things that we know are all beneficial. They're evidence-based, science-based activities. Uh, but, you know, we are uh, working hard to get more teachers um, and more parents doing uh, all of these activities uh, because to try to bridge that gap um, in terms of what we started talking about, which is stress and mental health, crisis to where we are now that we have this wonderful opportunity to develop these CQ skills uh, in this era of time that we're in. So that's really what we're hoping to do. We do. We have online programs for teachers and parents, um, and we have summer camps all uh, in Canada. And it's something that we've had a really great response to, uh, and we just see ourselves growing um, and, and expanding our dolphin pod. Absolutely. And I will be cer certainly putting in those, uh, those links uh, in the show notes and adding those to the intro as well. So I, I think that's such an important piece and you provided so many tangible examples. So I really thank you for that. Because I think quite often we can talk about these big picture ideas. And when it comes to translating them within, for example, the math or science classroom um, in middle or high school, it can be very complicated. Or people people think that somehow mindfulness and this gratitude piece is, is like it's silo, you know, an independent silo from the curriculum and the content around science or math. So I think it's a really important message that these things are actually very interrelated. And it's 
it's more effective if we are to integrate them within one another. So I, I really respect and, and uh, agree with that opinion, certainly. Before we jump to those rapid fire questions, um, I, I want to touch on, on two things. So the first thing I'd like to talk about, because you, you brought up this, uh, you know, relational uh, collaboration, what can come of that is often, you know, a conflict or uh, children who are working through, and even colleagues actually for that matter, who are working through differences or differences of opinion. What is the difference between bullying and normal relational conflict? Because I think that really makes people stumble. Yeah, a really important question because um, it, it, it is different. And in fact, I kind of say there's three different things that we need to know about. Um, so bullying um, is defined as repetitive uh, behavior that has an intent to harm um, and often is connected with a power differential. So um, think of the classic schoolyard bully, you know, bigger, picking on a little kid, um, wants to hurt that child um, and is repetitive in, in, in their actions. Um, and that cannot be tolerated. There needs to be intervention. But we also have to remember that bully is a child too. Mm. Um, and often it's a skills deficit. They need um, some skills to manage their emotions or manage their social um, uh, conversational skills, uh, 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 collaboration skills, that type of thing. Sure. Now on the opposite end would be uh, normal peer conflict. So normal peer conflict would just be two friends or two individuals on the playground. Uh, maybe they're both going after the slide and they both get there at the same time and they, they get into a bit of a fight over who gets to go down. Um, and that's normal peer conflict. That's actually supposed to happen. Um, there's learning in that. We want kids to um, actually uh, learn from, again, it gets back to that we can't get life with, go through life without adversity. We can't go through life without some social conflict uh, because there's skills that develop during those moments. And so that's where parents often need to just let it happen. However, in the middle of those two, is what we would call mean behavior. Now, mean behavior is not repetitive, it's not intentional, but it is mean. So the example might be, um, you know, uh, uh, let's think of an adult who's sleep deprived and really hungry <laughs> and somebody screws up our order at Starbucks and we just kind of get um, really irritated and cranky at the barista. Well, that's mean. We didn't mean to be mean. We didn't walk in there thinking we were going to be mean, but it was our own freeze, fight, or flight response that got triggered, um, and we were mean. Right. So, and that uh, requires an apology or some recognition, but it doesn't need to be um, uh, in the same category as bullying. So whether we're looking at the playground or the workplace, it's really important to know the difference between normal conflict, mean behavior, and bullying um, for everyone because the interventions are different. Normal peer conflict, you don't want to intervene. Mean behavior should be a, a small intervention. Bullying is much bigger. And you don't want to feel um, uh, that you've been bullied when you haven't, right? Because then that can be... Um, uh, you can internalize that victimization. Yes. And so kids who have kids, um, you know, saying that, oh, that kid was a bully, it's important for parents and teachers to take time to make sure that's what actually happened. Um, and it wasn't just a kid being mean to them or just something that's normal for, you know, and sometimes you don't get to go on the slide first. That's part of life. 
So I think uh, recognizing those distinctions for adults and kids uh, would really go a long way right now in our society. I completely agree. And I have to say that was probably one of the most concise and clear definitions of those three issues, let's call them, that I've ever heard. And I think it's tremendously useful. I think really teachers and and parents and edu- you know educational leaders should really be starting off our years uh, every every school year with that in mind because I think it really informs how we react and how we interact with one another in relation to those conflicts because I think ultimately those are the issues that trip us up the most. So thank you so much for speaking to that. Um, the last question that I have before before we wrap up is we have talked and touched quite a bit on youth mental illness and how can we support and hold space for our children and students who are struggling daily with anxiety, depression, and self-destructive behaviors, or even having thoughts of suicide? I just think considering we've spoken to this a little bit, it's really important that we, that we fight against that knee-jerk reaction to, to shame or, or punish those, those students to, you know, have that control and authority because of that fear behind it. How can we support those children who are in crisis, who need us most, but can often be quite difficult to love. Right. I think the key is just, first of all, remember their children. Um, and even though they're not your children, uh, really to take this sense of uh, moral obligation for our community that we live in. And, um, you know, I don't say that in a, in a righteous way, but in a, uh, if we understand that this is just how part of the human experience, we're meant to live this way. Our biology is driving us towards this. Um, this is no, you know, helping each other, particularly helping young people, um, is no different than our need to sleep or drink water. So if we take that approach, we will be more uh, open and willing to reach out a helping hand. Um, and that's really a, a key piece to to helping kids who are struggling is they need a community of support. Uh, it might be a psychiatrist like myself, but a lot of times it isn't. It's a teacher or a school counselor or a coach or an aunt or a cousin or a neighbor um, who has connected in some way that provides some optimism and hope uh, during those those really dark times. Um, and those teenage years where the brain is so messy um, <laughs> and figuring itself out. Uh, and to give, um, to reserve judgment, I say teenagers' brain is a bit like a toddler's body, meaning when children are toddlers and they're learning to walk, they they struggle and they stumble and they make mistakes and they hurt themselves and they even hurt other people. And teenagers who are learning to be adults are doing the same. They're struggling and they're stumbling and they're making mistakes and they hurt themselves and they hurt other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and to understand that that's part of that that mental development, just like they had to go through that physical development earlier in life. So compassion, kindness, community support, uh, all the simple but not easy things. Um, as a doctor, I do always have to say, if you're worried about a young person, um, reach out to a family doctor or um, don't hesitate, especially if it's an issue of suicide, to call 911 or take them to an emergency room or really get help because um, you know that is something that is uh, a risk in young people. Um, so to also get professional medical help as well. Thank you so much for that. I think it really was important to speak to that. Um, considering how how we did touch on these issues. So I appreciate that. Thank you. So we are now at the end of our interview, and I'd really like to 
just touch on five rapid fire questions that I hope you can respond to in about a phrase or less, give or take. And I know it can be hard, <laughs> but, um, but it's just, it's kind of a fun activity. So um, first question, could you define what kindness means to you? Kindness means it, to me, it's a natural human quality. Um, let it happen. Hmm. What book or books have you gifted most often to people? Oh, I have so many. Um, I gift uh, I, for business people and a lot of adults. I love that book, Give and Take by Adam Grant. Me uh, too. Talks about al- altruism. Um, in parenting, of course, I give my book a lot, which is Dolphin Parent. Um, but I also, there's this one book that I thought was a total gem. Uh, it was called Einstein Doesn't Use Flashcards. And it's just this, um, you know, book I read years ago and it, it really connected and resonated with me about, um, children and, and the children's brain. Um, and I, I like Dr. Shafali's book, Conscious Parenting, uh, so many, I think, uh, in terms of, uh, and anything on EQ or emotional intelligence. Thank you for that. What one skill or superpower does a teacher need to lead with in order to be effective? I would say adaptability um, within that concept of being firm in your value system, but flexible with all of the diversity of um, humanity that comes through your door. Um, And of course, compassion. Mm -hmm. So for some people, this has been the exact same answer or different, and I'm interested to know what it is for you. So what one skill or superpower does a principal need to lead with in order to be effective? I would say the same. Um, the only thing I would say different would be, um, uh, uh, I mean, exactly the same, but really promoting and intentionally deliberating, deliberately pushing um, that agenda of character and community uh, because principals uh, often don't have to deliver the curriculum the same way teachers do. Um, so they have the um, advantage or time or, or position to really be that moral compass um, and to step into that um, uh, 120%. Wow, that's a great answer. Thank you. And the final question, what message or quote would you print on one of those quote cups that are sold in big bookstores that might be read by millions? Uh, I love the, there's no such thing as an unmotivated kid. Hmm. Dr. Shimmy Kang, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day to have this conversation with me. It's been an absolute joy. I have learned so much and I know that it will be tremendously useful uh, in so many respects for teachers and educators and parents alike. So thank you very much. Thank you for all your great work and congratulations and best of luck on this fabulous initiative. This has been another episode of Kind Sight 101, the podcast. For links to resources mentioned in this episode, visit smallactbigimpact.com and click on our podcast and choose this episode number. Now, I'd love to give my audience a heads up about my new book, which will provide ideas, actionable strategies, and inquiry-based approaches to creating kinder classroom through serving the community. Subscribe to my blog, for more information. Now, I would love to hear from you. What's the biggest insight that you gain from this conversation? Head over to our website, smallactbigimpact.com, leave a comment on our podcast page, or tag and connect with us on social media with the hashtag smallactbigimpact to share your inspiring story of kindness. Can't wait to hear from you.